Welcome to the program. Chuck Morse here, Left Right Radio, every afternoon here at live at Facebook and uh, on YouTube. Uh, Stephen Bonell is with me, and Stephen is the host of his webpage, which is Destiny, um, where he uh, also streams a live program. Stephen, first of all, talk a little bit about what you're doing over there at Destiny. Um, I guess to, to be clear, um, I have a Twitch channel that's called Destiny, and then my website is destiny.gg. And basically, that and maybe give us, give me an example of of that. Um, I guess basically, what was kind of irritating was that it seems like conservatives often take the we have the fact based arguments, and you're using the feel based arguments. But when you dig into most of the empirical data regarding most issues, it seems to be the opposite. That conservatives oftentimes rely on very emotional arguments to make all of their points. So. Um, yeah, I guess that, that's that's kind of the. I guess that was kind of my starting point, um, and then I, if you want to go into like particular issues, I guess we can go anywhere. Yeah, maybe 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 give me a such as on that one. Um, I mean, so we could talk about something like healthcare. I guess um, a lot of conservatives are very much against, say, the Affordable Care Act or against. Um, I, I don't know, expanded Medicare, like all of the arguments that this revolves around are generally very emotional ones with absolutely no empirical backing whatsoever. Um, right. Usually something to some ambiguous appeal to some free market or something or, or going back to the way things were, which was a disaster. Um, so yeah, I have, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I mean, that's like one example of a million more. I mean, we could talk about immigration. We could talk about uh, foreign affairs, NATO. <laughs> I mean, like on all of these, I feel pretty confident that Republicans generally appeal to emotional arguments quite a bit. No, I mean, they're all very profound social issues. And I think that one can look to the emotional side of it and the empirical side. Um, as far as, um, I don't know, healthcare, I suppose we could start there. I mean, it's, um, I, I know that, um, I know this sounds anecdotal, but my, my brother, who is a lifelong liberal Democrat, unlike me, um, he got hit with a large increase in his small company this year um, for premiums and for the deductible. And he really was upset about that. And he felt that um, he wanted to do something about it. He didn't feel the Democrats could do, would do anything about it. In fact, they would do nothing. So he ended up actually voting for Trump. And uh, because at least he felt that even though Trump probably won't do a damn thing either, at least there was some conversation about, um, getting rid of this, um, you know, government interference in healthcare, which he links to the massive increase in his premium, which is uh, causing him to, uh, you know, actually hire less people this year. So um, I know that's anecdotal, but I'm not sure that's emotional. I mean, that's something that's quite real. That's hurting people. It's affecting people. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to pay for healthcare. I mean, <laughs> I mean, paying for car insurance hurts too. But I mean, the alternative is a population of people that have to, you know, go into bankruptcy every time they get a medical expense or die because they can't afford treatment or be locked into single jobs because they have to be locked into their employer health health care. I mean, it's going to take more money to do it. I, I don't know a way around that. For, so, yeah, I'm not. I'm not well, but, you know. I think that the answer is how to make health care costs and insurance costs more affordable for working people. I mean, that's what the health care program was supposed to do. And, and in fact, it was supposed to not change the actual healthcare plans. I mean, we know that, for example, when President Obama was selling the idea to the American people, he went around the country and he kept saying, he said it over 40 times, you, you know, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you could keep your doctor. He actually made claims that the cost out of pocket for businesses would go down. So, you know, of course you have to pay for health care. You know, we don't want to, we want to get coverage. Everybody does. But the question, you know, the, the, the policy question is, is there a way to reduce the cost to working people? And, and if so, what is it? And I, think I mean, that, yeah. some, some type of expanded Medi um, Medicare for all or whatever, or Medicaid. Medicare is the older one and the Medicaid is the low income one. I think Medicare. expanded Medicaid. Right. Yeah. Expanded. Okay. Yeah. Expanded. Medicare. Sorry. I mixed them all up. Um, Not at all. Yeah. The, 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 the expanded single payer option was an idea that was floated, but I don't think there was any chance that Republicans were ever going to get on board with that. Um, and even some Democrats getting on board with a single payer option is, is really difficult. Um, 
the healthcare in the United States is an incredibly complicated thing. The costs for everything here are just so absurdly high on everything. If you want to get an X-ray here, it costs like five times more than if you were to get it in any comparable European country. Um, if you want to get an MRI, it's like 10 times more. Like all of it is like so expensive. Um, I think that the goal of the ACA was to bring in more people into the insurance programs, um, which is supposed to help. Um, lower the cost for everybody for, for good care. There's a lot of different things that happen with the ACA that kind of hid what was going on as well. Um, so like, here's an example. A lot of people had health care before the ACA. So something like, um, I want to say it's like 65% of all bankruptcies in the United States were due to health care reasons. And of those people that filed bankruptcy, half of them had health insurance. So one of the problems that existed before the ACA was that there were a lot of insurance companies that existed that sucked. So like you could have insurance, but they would drop you over like a big medical bill or something, or the coverage was a lot worse than what you thought it would have been. So there are a lot of people who either lost their health insurance or who saw it get more expensive, who feel like they got ripped off. But in reality, the health insurance that they had before that was garbage anyway. They, they just didn't realize it because they didn't have to use it yet. So, I mean, yeah. No, it's, it's a complicated problem, as you say. And, and the mm -hmm. problem with the ACA is that people are discovering once they actually go to use it, that it's not there or that it's, you know, the premium is so high and then the deductible is so high that it ends up costing $10,000 before you can get a flu shot. So, I mean, well, for, it, I mean, the ACA is definitely there. If you have insurance through the ACA, you have it. Um, the the well, deductible like you have it on paper, but the point is when you go to use it, you suddenly discover that uh, you're not getting anything. I mean, I'm just, I'm pointing this out because some of these very same problems that you accurately identify with it, with private insurance, you know, the ACA hasn't really done much about it. I mean, as far as people who can't afford insurance, there's already Medicaid that is in place and that's that's costing the states and the government already a lot of money. And that uh, emergency rooms, by law, have to take people if you show up. And sure, so uh, emergency so rooms are really bad because they're very, right, very, very expensive. I mean, they but, provide medical coverage at the point of an emergency, but I mean, like that's a really bad thing to have to rely on ambulance costs alone, or it can be like a thousand dollars depending on what services you use on the way to the hospital. Um, I, I mean, like, yeah, it's, you don't have to pay those costs. I mean, you you can get that done, and that you know the states handle it. Look at, I mean, it's a yeah, it, as you say, it's a complicated question. Um, I've done some programs on it. Uh, I, I would point to, for an example, Switzerland even though you can't really compare Switzerland to the United States, it's, it's a tiny country, but they actually have universal health care in that they have a law that says that everyone has to have health care in the same way that in my own state of Massachusetts, there's a law that says if you put a car on the road, you have to have auto insurance. You have to have a minimal, you know, just a basic policy. And, but, but, the, but the difference is that the government itself doesn't get involved in it. They don't run the program. There's no rationing. There's no, you know, councils that are taking a look at whether or not you, you know, you're going to get coverage. It's all private. So you go to the insurance company, you buy it yourself. And if you can't afford it, the government will offer subsidies. You know, you can apply for that and get a subsidy. So I guess I'm, what I'm saying here is that uh, rather than have this enormous government program that we now see the, the consequences of in places like England where that poor little kid had to die because the government did not allow him by law to leave the country while the hospital in Italy was offering to treat him. You know, and it almost borders on an old left-wing idea which is called eugenics. You know, you can have a free market answer without, you know, which would result in the maximum number of people getting insurance because insurance would be affordable. The other aspect is, of course, the mandates. I mean, all, all these special interests are piling mandates onto the insurance policies on the state and federal level. And every one of those mandates costs money. It raises the premium. It seems to me that the only, the only absolute insurance that people should get by mandatory would be catastrophic illness and basic insurance. And all of these other mandates you know, you can have it if you want it. You can have it as a rider to your policy. Um, but to mandate them for everybody just rises the cost of premiums for working people. 
Okay, so there's a lot of different things in here that I have to unpackage. All right, so firstly, um, I don't like using Switzerland because Switzerland is a very rare example of a country that has a quasi-free market system. Although in Switzerland, you, you are compelled to buy insurance. You have to buy health insurance in Switzerland, and it can only cost up to 8% of your income. Past that, the government pays for it. So in some ways, it, it is very much subsidized in Switzerland, and you are compelled by the government to purchase it. Um, right. That being As said, yeah, Switzerland is one of the richest per capita countries in the world. It's like 600 times or 600% higher than the world's average. Like it's very, very, very wealthy and very small. Um, I think more comparable countries like Canada or the United Kingdom or Germany or France, these are countries that have forms of government health insurance that work just fine for their countries where they don't run into all the problems that we have in the U.S. that are more comparable to the U.S., so I think that those are more fair examples than using Switzerland. Um, fair enough. For, for that. Um, so that, so the, okay, so that was one thing. The second thing, the, the kid that died in England, um, there was no hospital in Italy that could treat him. They were just offering to keep him on life support. Um, in England, the reason why that kid was unplugged from life support was because that was the state advocating on behalf of the child because the parents were trying to keep that child alive, even though that child was way past dead. So the state had determined that it was like a cruel thing to keep the child hooked up to a machine for, forever, however long the parents wanted to, when the kid's brain was literally mush. I don't think that was an example of a failure in any healthcare system. I think that was a successful intervention of a government representing the interests of a child against parents that were crazy. Um, I don't know how much more well, you know about that. No, I mean, I would argue that, that the parents ought to have a say in that. And if there was a hospital that offered an experimental treatment, they ought to have been, and they weren't asking for the government to pay for it. Well, but it's, yeah. not, it's not that. There was no experimental treatment. The, the kid was pretty much brain dead. Italy was well, just offering to keep him on life I mean, This hospital was offering some kind of an experimental treatment. No, they were I'm not on life support. That was it. No, they just I think that they were, well, what I've read, it was some kind of treatment. I'm not suggesting it would work, but as a parent, I think that the parent should have had at least the option to, to do that if they chose to, and that the state coming in and saying, you know, not only uh, can you not legally leave the country, but that you'll be charged with a crime if you do it. Uh, and there were other examples too. There was one last year as well. Look, when you take a look at these socialized systems, it's not just these high visibility cases where the government comes in and they decide whether or not someone's gonna get treatment, but it's all of the cases that you don't see of people, the statistics that they don't keep of people who don't get treatment or who are dead because they didn't get treatment because it's rationed. Now, I want to move on to another subject, but I would well, just- I've never heard that. I've never heard that before. Because it's not, it's not kept as statistics. You're dead. The point is that if you well, have- That rationed, would be represented in fatality statistics or like lifespan. Like that yeah, would, but they don't say why somebody dies. I'm just pointing out that you don't have, you know, when you have rationed healthcare where the government decides whether or not you have a Corey score that, that gives you certain types of care, look, Private insurance has its problems. There's no question about that. I mean, you have to fight the insurance company to get the coverage that, that you're paying for, and, and sometimes they, they rip you off. But if I'm gonna to go to the hospital, I would rather have a private insurance company uh, you know, with a boss that maybe will advocate for me or somebody, a, a spouse that is gonna call them and go to bat for me if I'm gonna be going under the knife then if I have government insurance, in which case I'll probably not make it because there's nobody there. But I want well, to talk about the best case versus the worst case. Like I could just turn that to you and I could say, if I go to the hospital, I would rather have government insurance where all the elected officials are kept accountable by every single citizen versus a private company that's going to try to drop me if they discover a single thing okay. that's off about me. I mean, like I could, we could turn that around easily. We, all right. Well, we'll let our, our viewers decide whether or not which one they're more comfortable with the government running their insurance when they go to the hospital or their own private insurance policy. Well, if, if you look at health outcomes in the United States, like that decision has already been made. Health outcomes in the United States suck compared to other countries that are comparable to us. Our mortality rates are higher. Our, our infant mortality is uh, abysmal. Um, our, our health outcomes in the United States are just not good. Um, com compared well, we have to a other... much larger and more diverse population. But well, you can compare us to the whole of the you, EU. If you compare us to Andorra, then sure. But, well, but I want to United Kingdom about, or France or Canada. I want well, Canada is by the way moving after they had this Canadian Supreme Court step in because women couldn't get painkillers in pregnancy. They're moving more toward a free market, and a lot of Canadians go south of the border. 
Anyway, I want to talk about a more controversial, not that there could be a more controversial issue, but what the hell. Um, the securing of the southern border for preventing illegal immigration into the United States, um, whether or not they should actually build a physical wall, I don't know. I, I, th I tend to think that, that a wall is helpful in many cases, but not all. But I think that the idea of securing the border is a basic. And it's something that liberals and Democrats, there's some great YouTube on this, they've been talking about since the days of Reagan. I mean, you've got Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry and you know Hillary Clinton. You know, they're all talking about this. In fact, during the debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, they both pointed fingers at each other, accusing each other of financing a wall on the southern border. And they both did, apparently. They both voted for it in the U.S. Senate. And yet now, all of a sudden, because Donald Trump is president, they, they seem to be you know, absolutely against anything like that. Um, to my way of thinking, any sovereign nation has an obligation to protect its borders. It's a basic. I mean, uh, what say you with regard to this? I mean, protecting your borders are important. I think that people probably just don't like it when Trump talks about it because the perception is that Trump is a little bit racist, so it feels a little strange to listen to him talk about it. But, I mean, defending your borders is important, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't know if building a massive wall along the border is the best way to do that. but I don't know either, but I think that some wall is good because that way in the future, if you have an administration that is involved with this inexplicable policy of leaving open borders they won't be able to do it so easily because well, be, yeah, but like, uh, I don't think we've ever had an inexplicable policy of leaving open borders. No, but we have people who advocate for that and there's organizations that do, and there have been successive administrations, both Democrat and Republican who for different reasons have been very lenient with regard to illegal immigration. And that has gone down since Trump has been president. I think that if we could look at it as a left, right thing, You'd have to say that con the conventionally think, speaking the right, as it's conventionally defined, they want cheap labor. They want to undercut American labor and the gains that American labor has made by, by bringing people in who, who will work off the table and under the table and, and provide cheap labor. And on the left, you have groups like, uh, you know, the National Lawyers Guild and the ACLU and, and, and MEPFA and these others who believe in... Uh, you know, a borderless world and they want to have like a one world country, you know, entity with there's no borders at all. And, um, you know, I, I say as an American, a pox on both the houses, you know, I mean, I, I'm a former union guy. I believe in preserving the gains of American labor and, um, you know, illegal immigration threatens th those gains. So, you know, what say you with regard to, um, policies that are being thwarted that would otherwise strengthen the, the borders of our, of our nation. I mean, I think I've already said strong borders are important. I think a strong border is a good thing. Um, I can't tell if you're anti-immigration or anti-illegal immigration, but I mean, I don't illegal. like... Okay, yeah, I mean, illegal, illegal immigration, immigration is bad for a, for a host of reasons. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure how many mainstream, like, left-leaning figures are in favor of advocating for illegal immigration. No, it's not a matter of illegal. It's a matter of opening board. You know, I suppose it is. I mean, in a way, like to have, for example, legalization of the DACA, people who uh, were, were born here or who, who came at an early age here, mm -hmm. which is something I think most people support. But to do that without securing the border is just going to create a situation where there'll have to be another DACA down the road because it's going to make this country a magnet for illegal aliens if they know they're going to get citizenship. And, and also another issue that President Trump has brought up is reforming the family reunification uh, aspect of the immigration law, which was put in place in the 1960s and which has been abused. In other words, you, you know, if you're here and you're a citizen, you can bring in your, your immediate family, your parents, your children, your spouse, but to have suddenly, you know, your, your cousins and your aunts and your uncles, and then they come and they bring in their cousins and their aunts and their uncles, you know, that, that, that's, that's going to mean that if there's going to be citizenship for DACA recipients, 
the fact is that if there's, I don't know how many millions, or I think they, they estimate 800, seven to 800,000. The truth is that by the time the family unification kicks in, you could be looking at six, seven million people. Um, um, yeah, I mean, that's possible. I think our whole system needs like a massive reform. Um, I mean, I would never be against DACA for a whole host of reasons, but um, I, I mean, I don't disagree that we did like massive immigration reform in the United States, but I'm, I'm generally in favor of more immigration for the conservative reasons you mentioned earlier, though. So, Well, I think that, uh, you know, we, immigration should match what the economy can absorb. And also, if you have a genuine system of refugees, I think that we ought to give a good deal of leniency. For example, the Vietnamese refugees came in and they were, and, and the Haitian refugees, they're excellent immigrant groups. I mean, we ought mm-hmm. to welcome them in and help them. They, they, they're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're our friends. But but the idea that is different than, um, you know, people who are just simply coming in here, and I don't blame them, by the way, and leaving countries that are miserable, you know, socialist dictatorships and who want to better their lives. The, the problem really comes down to helping them improve their countries by getting rid of some of these old leftist regimes, like what you have in Venezuela and some other countries. Anyway, what are your thoughts? On, on what specifically? What do you mean? Um, well, let's, uh, we, we talked about it, about uh, immigration. Let, let's uh-huh. move. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, I, like I said earlier, I mean, like, the, the problem is like it's it's hard to talk about like any one piece of it because the whole thing needs to be reformed. Like so, for instance, like I would say that like I think that the current illegals that are here should probably just be legalized because kicking them out doesn't make sense. It's not possible to do. But obviously, like you said, if we legalize them, there's a whole host of other things that could happen because of the 1965 Immigration Act, which would also have to be addressed. Um, and then if we legalize illegal immigrants, it's possible that more illegals will come over, so the border has to be addressed. So like yeah, it's yeah, I mean, it's like a really comprehensive, it sucks because it's a really complicated thing, but there's not like one thing you can change. There's like a million different moving parts that all, we need like comprehensive immigration reform, basically, right? You're sounding a lot like President Trump. Well, um, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Actually, you are. Um, let's see. Um, what is this whole, I don't know, let's get down to it here, because uh, this is something that's interesting to me. This extreme hatred for President Trump, mm-hmm. um, I, I've seen it in my own life. You've probably seen it in yours. Um, you know, when I when I mentioned that I had voted for Trump, my mother stopped speaking to me. My brother stopped speaking to me. People are in shock. I'm here in Boston. Don't forget. Yeah. Um, and the reaction. I, I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the hatred people had for on the left had for Reagan. And I remember certainly the hatred for George W. Bush, especially in his last term, and the hatred for other conservative politicians like Newt Gingrich, et cetera. But nothing like this. I mean, this is so visceral. And and I, it's almost like, they, they, you know, people were screaming about senators and, and congressmen who were, were um, endorsing his cabinet picks. I mean, what do they think? I mean, he's not going to have a government. I mean, it's, it's gotten to be to the point where it's, it's the whole country is almost paralyzed. What do you make of it? Um, I mean, I'm probably going to be one of those people that come out more on the, on the hating Trump side. I personally believe that Trump is almost completely antithetical to the entire concept of the United States. I think he's made some of the worst statements that at least in my short life, I've ever heard a president make before regarding things that I believe to be core American values. Um, the statements that he's made about religion, the statements that he's made about immigrants, the statements he's made about first amendment rights, especially in freedom of the press. Um, the way that he conducts himself in general, I think, is pretty abhorrent. Uh, I mean, yeah, we can we can go into any number of topics. Well, you know, you're, you're mentioning some of his, you know, his his comments, which can be cringeworthy for sure. I don't think anybody likes some of you know certain of them. I mean, well, to clarify, I'm not talking about cringeworthy comments. I'm talking about blatant lies. He seems to be okay with just lying and letting it out there, and then. Well, I disagree with that, but but the, I just want to address the comments. Mm-hmm. He can be very cruel and he can be very rude and 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 insulting to people. But I think that you know, I want to talk about the the, the actual policies sure, of the sure. administration which I think have been extraordinary. I mean, he's gotten a lot more done with the opposition he has, and it's, it's extreme opposition, not I just totally from Democrats disagree. either, but Wait, also I, from liberal I Republicans. I don't think he's gotten anything done. Um, he's got a great deal done. Uh, no way, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> I 
well, uh, let me uh, let me outline it then. Both sure. in terms of policy, but also in terms of setting a uh, the country stylistically in a certain direction, which I think is very positive. As far as policy, we did not enter into the the the, the uh, TPP trade agreement. We did not enter into the um, the Paris Climate Agreement, which would have not taken a single part particle of carbon out of the atmosphere. It was nothing more than a payoff to uh, to a bunch of this shadowy group called the Green Group. Um, he uh, recognized um, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which was passed by Congress 20 years ago and which was supported by both parties until Trump had the nerve to, to actually go ahead and do it. He's reduced the footprint of ISIS by 20, by 95 percent. He has brought the North Korean dictator to the point where he's going to be having a meeting with him next month. And the South Korean pres uh, prime minister has, has, has recommended him for a Nobel Peace Prize for that. He has gone to the European summit and presented a position that they're now beginning to embrace, which is just for the same reason that I want to put my country first. I recommend you put your countries first, and then we can have a system of, of nations that are operating in their best interests. I think his trade policies have been positive. I think the tax cut was positive. It gave put money in people's pockets, many thousands of dollars, what Nancy Pelosi called crumbs, uh, into the pockets of working people, both directly and also by companies raising their minimum wage, which is something the left has been talking about forever um, in a practical sense. And it has stimulated the economy in the real sense of leaving income at its source of production with workers, with companies. He has gotten rid of onerous regulation. Every time the government puts in a new regulation, they have to examine existing ones and get rid of ones that are regressive and are harmful to business. And um, he's reduced, I mean, the number of illegal aliens entering the country has been reduced by 60%. I mean, I, I could go on, but but the stylistic piece is. Well, that, wait. Can I can I speak to this for a course. second? Okay. Of course. So, firstly, for Trump not entering the TPP, the TPP was dead under Obama. That was never going through. It had no support in Congress whatsoever. So Trump didn't Trump didn't make the decision not to enter the TPP. The TPP was already one hundred percent dead. Um, in terms of not entering the Paris Climate Agreement, um, I mean, we can take contrary. We'll, we'll probably have contrary positions on that. But Trump's entire position on climate change is insane. He literally says that it's a hoax invented by China, which stands contrary to every piece of empirical data that all that most scientists around the world have come to an agreement about how climate change works. So, I mean, I wouldn't consider anything he does related to climate change or clean coal or anything to be a positive. Um, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, I, I guess if you're very pro-Israel, I guess that can be a positive. I don't like our position in the Middle East and I don't like Israel's position related to Palestine. I think all of that is really complicated. I, I, don't, I guess if you wanna give that to him as a positive, that's fine. Reducing the footprint of ISIS by 95%, the majority of ISIS was destroyed under Obama. Trump has not done a massive amount destroying ISIS over the past two years. Um, I, I, that ISIS has been like a non-factor for multiple years. I reject that. Under what basis? ISIS. No, I, I, ISIS was on the march until Obama came in. I mean, it's from what I've read and what I understand. Now, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, but I think that uh, the Secretary of Defense Mattis and um, and other figures in the Defense Department, Trump radically changed. I don't think it was radical, but he changed the entire um, what, what's called the rules of engagement by allowing them to do what they do as opposed to what Obama was doing, which was micromanaging from the White House, very much what Lyndon Johnson did, by the way, in, in the Vietnam War. You know, he has said to the generals, you're in the field, you, you know what you're dealing with, you're looking at the problem, I'm going to give you the leeway to do this job. And they have done extraordinary things from what I've read. Um, okay, I mean, as somebody, I followed all of that very, very closely for the, for the, for since 2013 onward, um, for everything that's gone on in the Middle East, ISIS ha has been continually destroyed. They've been crushed from all sides. The, the, the Kurds in Iraq, um, the, the Iraqi forces themselves, the multiple people, the coalitions almost, um, the Turkish, the Russians, the Syrians, like everybody has been destroying ISIS for a long time. Nothing significant changed under Trump. Um, I, I mean, we, we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. We can disagree on that, disagree on that like, one. And yeah, also, now he's talking about getting rid of this horrible uh, Iranian nuclear deal that um, by which Obama delivered was $150 billion in cash or, or some in cash sure. in credits to so that, the Iranian mullahs who, who now the Israelis have identified 
empirically that they just continued on with their development of nuclear missiles instead of the bombs. Instead, they're putting it on missiles. And the um, well, real, real that, quick, because this is a piece of fake news that this is a lie that Trump himself spreads. Actually, we didn't so just it's Israelis yeah. who said it. Well, well I'm thinking, Yahoo yesterday gave a press conference where he presented the evidence both. Uh, he had these, I don't know if you saw this. He had all the documents and the disks showing that Iran has continued apace with their nuclear development. Sure. So I'm, I'm talking about um, I'm talking about the idea that we gave Iran 150 billion dollars in cash or whatever. That was the New York of, Times. That had nothing to do with Trump. That was there were pictures of it in the New York Times. No, sure. Of so the, of the of the skips of money arriving at the airport. I mean. They did this. It's, it's bizarre, actually, but I don't think that's it, even controversial. No, no, no. It, 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 it is. It's not bizarre, and it is controversial because a lot of people misrepresent what's actually happening. As part of the Iranian deal, what we did was we agreed to unfreeze Iranian assets that had been frozen. That's all it was. The United States wasn't making a payment to Iran. We were just unfreezing previous assets that had been frozen that they weren't allowed access to. All right. So you're saying that those skiffs of, of cash, American dollars, billions of dollars – that was actually Iranian money? Yes, that was part of the Iranian deal was unfreezing those assets. Yeah, it, it wasn't us just paying, just giving a lump sum of cash to Iran. Well, look, I, I have a feeling that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. And and we shouldn't have released that, the money either way. I mean, it it funded this uh, now what we now know to be further nuclear development in that country and the development of, of intercontinental ballistic missiles, which can reach... At this point, they say all of Europe and will ultimately possibly be able to reach the United States. So, uh, you know, the, the idea of lifting the embargo and, and letting them have access to those funds, putting aside how much actual American money is in there. And I think that there was American money from my recollection. It was a very bad policy. And I think it's now proven to be something that Trump has had to inherit and he's going to have to grapple with. And it's a very dangerous situation. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree, but walking away from the table and refusing to negotiate with them at all is probably not the, the step forward. Well, you're going to negotiate with them after you get rid of this bad deal, which allows them to continue to develop their, their nuclear missiles. Well, they were so developing they, it beforehand. That was the whole point of making the deal. Was yeah, just but trying the to point is that they, 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 when the embargo was lifted, that was they gave them all this money to further develop them, and they promised they would not, but they did. You know, it's kind of like what happened to Clinton during the, uh, with North Korea. Madeleine Albright went to the border and she had a meeting and they said, we're going to not further develop our nuclear bombs if you give us money and food, which we did. And then, then she came back waving the, the document in the air like, like Chamberlain. And we find out three or four years later that they never stopped for a minute developing their nuclear capacity. I only hope that Trump has enough smart people around him if he does go to uh, the Korean border, because he, you know, I don't know if he's all that sophisticated in this area where he's not snowed the way Clinton was by the North Koreans, because sure. there has to be a way to verify whether or not they actually mean it when they'd say denuclearization. Gotcha. OK, and then just to clarify, there is no claim that Iran has an active arms program now. That Israeli claim was saying that they were developing nuclear arms before the 2015 agreement. Now that they're doing it right now, the White House clarified that a few days ago. I have the article in The Wall Street Journal. I mean, I, I, I can't. We're in the middle of a broadcast here. Uh-huh. The so here's, like, here's an ABC News link. Has or had, the White House is quietly walking back a charge that Iran maintains an active nuclear weapons program, saying it really meant that Iran had one before the 2015 nuclear agreement. Um, yeah, this was a statement sent by uh, Sarah well, Huckabee. The, what, what, what did Netanyahu say when he gave that presentation uh, a couple of days ago? I mean, he pointed out that they have continued with their nuclear development, except um, they gave it a new name, and they basically, instead of, you know, technically, they're not building the bomb. Instead, they're building the missiles, so they shifted it. It's a very tricky. Oh, well, business. well, I, I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm just trusting our intelligence agencies here. So, a statement sent to reporters Monday by Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said a cache of Iranian documents released by Israel is consistent with what the United States has long known. Iran has a robust clandestine nuclear weapons program, but intelligence agencies in the U.S. and overseas have stated that the 2015 nuclear deal has frozen Iran's nuclear program. The version of Sanders' statement posted to the White House website has been modified to make clear that Iran had such a program. The White House is calling it a clerical error. Hmm. All right. I didn't see that. That's interesting. I tend to believe 
the Israelis in this matter in that they have sure. said that it, that the nuclear program is continuing. Sure. But, Looking um, at the next claim after the reducing yeah. footprint of ISIS thing, you're saying that he brought the North Korean dictator to the point to where he's going to have a meeting. So North right. Korea developed ICBMs and has an and had an active nuclear program. Like, I think that North Korea is coming to the table to talk now because now they feel like they can do it as equals. They've gotten their nuclear program running. They have um, international strike capability. Now they're ready to come to the table and talk. I don't know if it's a congratulations to Trump that North Korea had ICBMs that could almost reach New York that now they're coming to the table to talk peace. I don't know if that's a credit to Trump or not. It seems a really strange way of presenting that. Well, in 2012, apparently the Obama administration received intelligence that indicated that North Korea not only had these ICBMs, but they actually had the capacity to embed them into missiles and put them into a form of a warhead. And they chose to do nothing about it. They decided to, they would ignore it. So they've had it for a while. Well, the they have to now, test it in order for it to be functional. I mean, so, have, in case you haven't noticed, they have been testing them. This well, yeah, but not in, not in 2012. <laughs> I mean, no, but they had them, and the uh, the intelligence community knew they had them, and they did nothing about it. They decided to keep it quiet. Look, my point is here is that at this point, I think what's happened to North Korea is the same thing that happened to the Soviet Union. They're running out of steam. I mean, a communist country... It doesn't produce anything. All it does is expropriate capital from other people or it's back. It's supported by others, you know, and it lives off of plunder. And um, just like the Soviet Union eventually imploded on its own rot, I think that North Korea and my evidence on this is very simple. They had a soldier defect and this was one of the elite unit soldiers and he was near starvation. Now, if North Korea can't even feed their own elite soldiers, then they're in a lot of trouble. And I think what that shows is that the embargo, which was tightened by the Trump administration, is having an effect. I mean, they're on the verge of complete collapse. We don't really know why they're coming to the table now, but I would argue that that is a much more likely scenario in terms of why they're coming. They're, 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 they're imploding. You know, like yeah, I don't dis I don't disagree with that. They're definitely imploding. China's tired of dealing with their shit, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah, but none of these things are a credit to Trump's superior negotiating things. These are all inevitabilities. No, I think it is because he's tightened the embargo and he's threatened. And also when Trump, you know, past presidents, not just Obama, but, you know, they might you know, rattle the saber a little bit and they might say, you know, there'll be consequences. And, you know, you have John Kerry, you know, talk with his his his, his big, you know, Pony accent, British accent, and, and nobody believes them. Whereas with Trump, they're not so sure. You know, maybe he. Yeah, but I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> maybe Trump does plunge into World War Three. Like, seem to think it's a good thing, and so do the Japanese. They're saying that because he actually means business, and when he says these things, it's not just a bunch of lies or a bunch of diplom diplomatese. I mean, we've been will do it. I, get, I, get, I just, is responding to that. I mean, we've but, been tightening embargoes on that country for decades. I just, it no, seems it, very strange it, to see that. I think we, he also got the Chinese on board. But the Chinese have been on board. He, he won't work with the really. Chinese. No, the Chinese have used North Korea as a, as a proxy. They've always kind of done it through the back door. And there's even an article recently about that. But I think, I think it's more that North Korea exists as a thorn in the side to China. I think China is, has grown increasingly tired in dealing with North, North Korea's stuff. They don't represent their interests as much anymore. And all they do is they destabilize the region. And China, I think China just wants to grow economically. I don't think they're as interested. Okay. In you and I can debate it. We don't, you know, we, again, we don't actually know what the hell is going on. Okay. Um, but, uh, but I point out, now that I've, I've laid out the, the, the specifics in terms of policy, Oh, wait, wait, wait. Well, I'm sorry. I just had a couple more things. Oh, yeah, sure. So you pointed out trade policies being positive. I absolutely disagree with this one as well. Um, I, I mean, he, the head of his economic advisory board quit. The whole idea behind this protectionist policy has a lot of people worried about potential trade wars. You've seen stock markets, the Dow dips sometimes in response to worries about this stuff actually going through. Um, I don't think any economist approves of any sort of crazy tariffing of other people. Some do. Most of them don't. You're right. Um, look, I mean... Uh, First of all, there's been no trade war. There's only talk of trade war. And I think that the media banning that up is actually quite detrimental because so far China actually, from what I've read, has agreed to um, certain conditions to, um, you know, to, to compensate American uh, labor and industry. 
Um, and I think uh, well, I mean this is not what you just said. Is this not true. Is China has increased. China's increased taxes on pork, wine, nuts, and uh, I mean, like they, they've already responded with some tariffs of their own. They've they've always had tariffs, as has the European Union. Okay, Look, they're increasing. The is, there already is a trade war in that the European Union and and China and other countries they already put tariffs on American imports. Look, the thing is that the United States is still in a position today where we have enough leverage, I would argue, to. Uh, to level the playing field a little bit on the international trade scene, to protect American industry and American labor. Tariff policies is something that goes back to the Washington administration. Every administration has dealt with it. It's in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, that Congress shall regulate tariff and trade and that the president will recommend policies. That's, that's just what every administration does. And I think that while we still have some leverage in the world, as an economic power, and uh, we ought to try to strike a better deal in trade in terms of, you know, balancing the trade deficit and protecting American labor. Now, most economists, you're right, don't agree with that. And it's a controversial issue. There's that versus just free trade. And, you know, it's good for the consumer. I, I, I support the Trump administration on this. I, I think the position is actually one that liberals traditionally have supported. Bernie Sanders was on this thing. I mean, this is not just Trump. It's actually somewhat traditionally a more liberal position. But I think it makes sense at this time because we still have the ability to do it without having major consequences to our internal economic system. We can still protect our, our labor and our industry. I mean, it's, but, like it's, right. Right. it's an issue which reasonable people can differ. You know, it's one of these debates. It's not even a left-right debate, as I said. I mean, it's, sure. you know, it's more an economic question. But, but, but I point out that on, on an overall style, Trump has introduced something that other leaders have occasionally given some lip service to, and it may seem like not a big deal, but it actually is very profound. And that is that he is supporting the concept of national sovereignty, of the nation state, operating in its own interests, putting its own citizens first. You know, this sounds like rhetoric, but it's 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 quite different than than the sort of the more globalist vision that we've been hearing from successive past administrations, both Democrat and Republican. Um, you know, he's not talking about being a citizen of the world, which was what Obama said when he was in Berlin, when he was running for president the first time. And he's not talking about what George Bush Sr. talked about when he referred to the new world order and this new wage and all this crap. He's talking about American interests first, America first for all Americans. I think that that philosophically is something that we ought to embrace, whether you like Trump or not. I think if Trump doesn't survive his, his presidency, I'm hoping that enough people can understand that that is a progressive idea, that we can move forward with that, and that that's one of the markers that can be put in and won't change, because it's a good idea, it's a progressive idea, it's a democratic idea, that a sovereign nation and the people in that nation would take control of their own destiny and their own life. I mean, so by definition, it's not a progressive idea, it would be a traditional or conservative idea, um, the idea of kind of freeze framing right now and not moving forward into a different type of future. That's generally more considered progressive, right? By definition. I don't know what you mean by that, but I'm simply saying that the idea of the nation state operating in the interests of its own citizens mm -hmm. is a progressive idea. And it's something I don't think that so. I think it's a very traditional conservative idea. Okay, fine. Yeah. And if you want, if you want to say that, okay, either way, it's what Trump is advocating. I mm -hmm. view it as progressive in the real sense, not politically progressive as in left wing, but progressive in terms of actually helping people. Well, but it and, won't help people. I, I mean, globalization has helped more people in the world than, than any single nation state has ever had the opportunity to. I mean, you have, Oh, I disagree. It helps Americans and it helps sovereign people in other nations to control their own life and destiny. It doesn't mean be an isolationist. Well, but you know, those, globalist those, that's a false construct. Being more connected to other countries gives us the ability to trade easier and get less barriers to travel. Yeah, those trade, don't you think that those relationships, I mean, look, at Franklin Roosevelt patented this, the idea of bilateral trade agreements nation by nation. You, you have, we have a friendly relation diplomatically and, and economically with various nations based upon the interests of our nation and theirs and with agreements that can be sunsetted or changed 
if conditions change. I mean, you know, it's it's really operating from from the standpoint of putting America first, that you then reach out to other nations and and you you trade with them on on a on a stronger footing. I mean, to me, that makes sense in the same way that it's natural. I mean, in the same way that you or I put our own interests first over those of other people. I mean, that's that, but, the, but we don't even do that. That's not actually true. You you're just you're being arbitrary in where you draw the line. Like, where do you live right now? What state do you live in? I live in Boston. Sure. Okay. So, yeah. So it, it, you don't. I, I I could be wrong when I say this, especially if you're from Boston. Um, I'm just kidding. But right. I'm guessing that you don't see yourself as a I don't know what you would call yourself a Massachusetts and or whatever. You don't see yourself as a as a citizen of Massachusetts before a citizen of the United States, do you? Yeah, I, I guess I guess not. But the point is, what what is what is what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? What is our what is our version of nationalism? It's what not- is our version of of being a citizen of the world. It's just taking that concept and expanding it out one more. No, that's, that's, we're not, we're citizens of the United States. Well, but this um, is what the founding fathers talked about. This was the whole point of the, um, of the, of the federalist papers and uniting the 13 colonies into one federal government is because right. uh, together you have more power together. When people come together, it makes everything easier. Um, the fact that instead of being 50 independent sovereign states, we are one country that is united with similar laws, with an identical currency, um, with similar agreements, a similar governing body. It makes everything that happens in the united states so much easier to to do everything gets better our financial transactions our our language our travel you never have to think our culture for sure i agree with that but we're not federated with other other states and we have 50 states we don't have 51 states i mean the point is that we are a confederacy or a federal entity of states and that the federal government is balanced by the powers of the states as well um, and that our idea of nationalism or of the nation state is very different than those of a socialist state, whether it be national socialism in Germany or international socialism in Russia or communism or any of these other forms of socialism. We believe in a limited government that is under a constitution where the citizen dissents from government. We don't trust government. This was laid out by Thomas Paine in his book, Common Sense, which was one of the major influences of the American Revolution, that government is a fearful power. It's a, um, you know, it's it's not to be trusted. So that's why we limit its powers and we divide its powers and we criticize it and investigate it all the time. You know, it's not the same vision that the left has of the ultra hyper-nationalist nanny state connected to the whole world. It's very much that the state exists to protect our rights as citizens, and we have to exercise those rights by monitoring the state and criticizing it. That's American nationalism, not worship of the state, not hyper-nationalism, where the state comes in and, and, and dictates large aspects of your life, whether it be health care, whether it be education, welfare, or any other area. You know, it's a limited idea. That's the American national system, and that's what Trump is talking about. I mean, if you yeah, but I mean, have all of that and still have a unified body that helps ease things like the EU or whatever, I'm guessing that's probably something that you're against, something like the European Union? No, no I'm not against it, but I think that it, it has become more intrusive into people's lives and more socialistic, which is why Britain left it. You know, they were regulating. You had faceless, unelected bureaucrats in Brussels. Wait, that's, wait who are faceless, unelected bureaucrats? What do you mean? In other words... The people that were, were were passing regulations over very apparently, from what I've read, relatively intimate aspects of the life of the citizens of Great Britain were these non-British bureaucrats in Brussels, the U- European Union. Who, well, yeah, uh, you, every, everybody, every member state gets to elect their own members of parliament. I mean, much the same. That's like saying that I live in. So I personally live in Nebraska and I don't like it when Congress makes laws for my country because faceless people in D.C. are making laws for me. And they're not even from Nebraska. They're from New York or they're from Florida. Well, that doesn't make sense. Like we have our senators. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Don't you believe in the, the system of I mean, one of the basic aspects of our system is subsidiarity, which is, by the way, something that came from the Anglo-Saxons. It also has been an aspect of the Catholic Church. And that is, and, and Tip O'Neill talked about this, by the way. It's not, I don't even think it's a left right thing. And that is that the stronger the government, the more local, you know? I mean, the local government has, because that's where people live, you know? Your school system, 
You elect people to the school board because they have children in the public schools because you're there, your neighbors, you could talk to them. You have more control over what goes on in your school. And then the state has less say, say over it. And then finally, the federal government has even less say over that. I mean, the Constitution is very specific in the powers it gives to the federal government. And it's not things like, you know, the education of your children or your health care or anything else. It's, it's more delineated. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution really lays out exactly where the powers of the federal government reside. And th that's, that's more of the American understanding, not to have a, a, a nanny state that's overarching and that is dictating aspects of our life. And that's why Britain left the European Union, not because they shouldn't have some kind of a, a, a trade agreement and, you know, they shouldn't have a free market or whatnot, but because these bureaucrats who were not elected by the British were legislating over the alliance. <laughs> They are elected. They, they elect their members of parliament to the European. Do the British council. people directly elect people to, to Brussels? Yes. No, I don't think they do. I think that they, the British government sends envoys to. to no, to every body. single member state of the European Union elects their own people, depending on, I think it's based on population, elects their own people to go to that, to be part of that European uh, parliament. They elect every single individual state gets to elect its own people. And then there's a, the ultimate like commission or whatever is 28 people, which is one person from each of the member states. And then there's a leader from that that's elected by those 28 people. But everybody there is an elected official. They're, they're not random okay. unelected people. I, I might stand corrected on that. But the point is, does, does the European Union have some kind of a, um, a constitution that limits its ability to go into any one of the nation states and start dictating family policy, for example, which I don't think so firstly, I don't think the European Union goes in and dictates family policy. No, they were. That's why the British were upset. They the were British were upset because a lot of British people voted to leave the European Union because they have a lot of really bad ideas about how economics works or how new agreements are going to no, be made. I disagree. I well, think like, they so what's one benefit that they you were think seeing that the consequences over their own personal lives over the European Union coming in and, like what and and passing regulations. I don't know the details. I know that I've read enough about it that well, like what's was, like a single consequence that was negative? What what was something that hurt the the um, United Kingdom being part of the European Union? What was like a bad thing about it? I think that they were involved with regulating practically, you know, the education questions. Um, they were regulating certainly immigration into England. They had they, their immigration policy was handed over to the European Union. No, that's not that's that's absolutely not true. The, okay. the the immigration area, the the Schengen the Schengen zone or whatever, that agreement, the Euro, the United Kingdom was actually specifically exempt from that free from that free movement area. They're specifically not a part of that. They still had their own border. They would still allow people in and out. Well, look, I mean, my understanding is that the objection, and I I draw from um, the leader of the UKIP, who I heard speak on this topic. Um, was that the European Union was encroaching on the ability of the uh, the British citizen to uh, to you know to conduct the affairs in the way they saw fit and under their own government it was usurping and eroding the sovereignty of the of, of Great Britain and that's that's not a good thing I mean you want to have sovereign nations where people can determine to a higher degree their own life and destiny and um, the United States, you know, we, we have a union of states, but beyond that, you know, the, the, the federal government is, is, should be proscribed in its powers. It's not, it's not this arch, overarching thing. Issues like social policy, those things traditionally have been left up to the states and to the, uh, you know, the 10th the Amendment to the Constitution codifies that. And, and my understanding is that, um, you know, it's not the, the European Union has become a little too, too overarching in its in its power and control. It's one thing to have a uh, you know a free market trade agreement like we have in this country between the states, but that um, that they were moving much more toward toward a, a centralized state, and that's why I do object to that. Okay, I mean, I guess we just disagree on. On the future of the EU, I guess, or in integration of multiple states, I guess, in general, we just kind of disagree on that fundamentally. We do. We do. Anyway, Stephen, so what else is on your mind? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we hit quite a few areas.
We did. Um, what are your thoughts on the upcoming midterm election? You think um, it's going to be a blue wave, or what do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to, yeah, I think there's going to be a surprising amount of, of blue coming in. I think the Republican Party is on the verge of a huge fracture um, that they're going to have to get figured out. You mean between like the uh, the so-called rhinos and the more conservative Republicans? No, between the um, between the the Ryan's and the McConnells and the Trump the Trumparians, the, Trump, um, the Trumpers, the yeah, Trumpers. I think that Trump has a a support in the Republican Party now that he's taken a lot of traditional Republicans into his wing, and I think that there are a lot of traditional Republicans that don't really agree with Trump and are more would be more likely to side with somebody like a Paul Ryan or a McConnell. And I think that you're coming up on a big fracture where these two sides are going to be irreconcilable and it's going to be really bad for conservatives in general in the United States because the, the, the Democrats seem so far like they're more united on that front than, um, than the Republicans are. Well, you see, you, I'm sure you hope that happens. I think that on the Democrat side, you still have the war between the Bernie Sanders Elizabeth Warren left side of the party and the more traditional Democrats. So I guess you could say that there's almost a, a parallel struggle there. And that struggle has also played out, I think, in some states. So, well, so to, be, to be clear, um, I consider myself, I really do consider myself center left. On some positions, I'm, I am mm-hmm. quite conservative on. Economically, I'm, I'm quite conservative on things where I feel like the government doesn't need to intervene. So I don't think it's a positive thing for the Republican Party to self-destruct um, because having any one party with too much power is probably a bad thing. Uh, the, right. the country will pull off too far in one one direction, and that's probably not a good thing. Like something like a $20 minimum wage for the entire country is probably not good policy. And I don't know if Democrats would, would go in that direction if they had the ability to. So I, I don't agree that, that the Democrats sweeping over everything is going to be a good thing. Um, I also don't agree with the assessment that there is a big split on the left. To some extent, there is. There's a split between the, the kind of the newer progressives versus the, the kind of the old guard Democrat. I, I guess you could say that's kind of um, epitomized um, or, or symbolized with uh, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders. That, that's still kind of there. But I think that the left is more energized because they have a common enemy to hate, which is Trump. So everybody's going to come out to vote just because they don't like him so much. Whereas on the Republican side, there's just no party unity right now. There's so much infighting. And then the whole Russian investigation is still hanging over everybody's heads. And there's just so much indecision. The Trump administration in and of itself, whether you think they're doing a good job or a bad job, is horrendously disorganized too. So it just seems like there's so much more problems on the right. Not like in a they're better or worse, but just in terms of like political or party unity, it seems like the right is having a lot of trouble with that right now. Whereas on the left, it's really easy because you just have to say, I really hate Trump. And then you kind of have a friend right now in, in American politics, at least. You know, I think the Republicans and conservatives have always been highly fractured by nature. There's never, you know, with the left, it's always kind of unified in that they want to move towards socialism. The only question is how fast. Well, but there is a huge difference. So like as evidence of your fracturing before, we, we both remember the Tea Party, right? Sure. I, you could argue that the Tea Party to some extent was a fracture, but I don't think the Tea Party was as vitriolic to establishment Republicans as the, as the Trumples are. Like I, I could be wrong, but like mm-hmm. it felt like the Tea Party more just wanted to br- reel the Republican Party in a little bit more. Whereas people that are hardcore loyal to Trump will say, you know, screw you, Republicans. You're just as bad as the Democrats. I hate all of you other guys that aren't supporting Trump. It seems like they're much more vitriolic towards the aspects of the party that don't support them than the Tea Partiers were. I was a little younger for the Tea Party era, but that's the impression that I get. I think that also if, if you're right and that the Democrats are really basically the only thing they have to put on the table right now is hatred for Trump. That's not going to make it because, first of all, his numbers in the polls are going up. Secondly, the Democrats, according to some polls I've seen recently, really have not made inroads into the millennials and the minority vote like they would think you otherwise would using their usual uh, emotional appeals. Um, And in fact, Trump has actually picked up support among minorities. I saw a recent poll, and that's his natural constituency, by the way. I saw a recent poll which showed that he is now supported by 18 percent in among black men, not women. Um, and that's a significant increase. Now, obviously, I don't think he's going to take the black vote. They are very much part of the Democratic Party firmament. But even if he peels off a certain percentage, 
And I think that he is moving in that direction. I predict that by the end of this year, you're going to see more people, millennials, more minorities coming out publicly, even though it's to do so, you could end up getting viciously attacked. And they're going to be supporting Trump, or if they don't do it publicly, they're going to do it privately in the voting booth. And there's not going to this big red wave, this big blue wave is going to turn into eh, maybe a ripple. I mean, certainly the Republican Democrats are going to pick up some because that's how the system generally works. But it's not going to be what what you might think. At least I hope not. Yeah, maybe anyway, I guess we'll Stephen. see when the election rolls around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Stephen, we've reached toward the, toward the end of the program, so I'd like you to let people know where they can reach you and how they can get information about your show and anything else you want us to know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm on destiny.gg is my website and I'm usually streaming on a website called twitch.tv. You can find me at twitch.tv slash destiny. Um, yeah, politically I'm pretty center left. I probably came up as being pretty left left here just because you're uh, yeah, obviously really? somewhat writer. So, oh, okay. So yeah. Um, by yeah, the way, I thought somewhere. Twitch was a gaming site. Um, yeah, it is. I, I do like okay. my, I do half and half between video games and politics. And Are you doing a video and also a, a politic, political talk? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, pretty much something like no, that. I'll have to check it out. All right, Stephen, listen, I appreciate you being with me this afternoon. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. All right, take care. Thanks and a lot. I shall return tomorrow at, uh, at 12 noon and, and also special editions. Thanks for watching, everybody.